Excellence. Today we begin our final book together. Today we begin Virgil's Aeneid. We'll start with some background on the Romans and who they were. Very brief. We'll give you a little background on Virgil and who he was. We will make some contrasts between the Romans and the Greeks, potentially. We'll make those more during the course of the text. And I will introduce the skeleton of the first six books of the Aeneid to you. We will not be reading, unfortunately, the entire text together. We simply do not have the time. Uh, we will read selections, I believe, from books 7, 9, and 12. You will see how the Aeneid ends, but you won't see some of the time leading up to it. That said, there's just so much to say. So let us begin. Alright, Virgil, the poet of the Aeneid. Let's give you his dates, first and foremost. He was born in 70 BCE. Remember, BCE means the same thing as BC before Christ. Uh, and he died in 19 BCE. Something interesting to note is he actually started construction of the Aeneid in 31 uh, BCE at the behest of the emperor of that time, Octavian, known as Caesar Augustus. And so some people think that the Aeneid, and I would say that this is a very superficial understanding of it, is a work of propaganda. Now, if you have, say, a high school Latin teacher who happens to have read one book on the Aeneid that mentioned the fact that it might be propaganda, you might yourself also think that it is a work of propaganda. But I will say that it is actually a work of immeasurable genius, and that in fact a author that you will read next year, Dante, will himself be guided through hell and purgatory by Virgil, not because Virgil is a stooge for the Roman people, a propagandist, but because he is himself a genius teacher capable of liberating the mind in order to free the will of man. That said, there are certainly elements of propaganda in the Aeneid. It is very Rome positive in the same way that Homer was archaic Greece or Hellas positive, of course. He is positive on the people he is uh, talking about because he is himself constructing a mythology for the Romans because they were, to him, a great people. And they were, in fact, a great people who lived for a thousand years and even longer if you consider their eastern kingdom, the kingdom of Byzantium, part of Rome. And so part of what the project of this epic story will be will be to join the history of the Romans to the history of the Greeks, to join the history of the Romans, of so the lineage of their men, to the lineage of the gods. Which is, in fact, at least so far as we've seen in history with the Greeks, the Hellenes, and now the Romans, how a great people defines itself as descended always from the what's? The gods. Zeus and the gods. Though, of course, Zeus will now be known as Jove, and Jupiter. Alright, so the Aeneid was an epic poem which was written about the glory or to glorify Rome. And to glorify means both to tell the truth of it, but also to give them an ideal towards which to reach. Hmm. And I will tell you much about the, uh, the production of Rome, their mythological roots as well as their historical roots. It was written during a period of Roman history called the Pax Romana, which was considered a very famous, very uh, important part of history because it literally means the Roman peace from 27 BCE to 180 CE. That's uh, 80, Anno Domini, the year of the Lord, the years after Jesus died. That's why 80 is called AD. That's a 207-year reign of peace, which would be impressive even now, 
with modern democracies even more impressive during a time when the Romans were surrounded by people they defined as barbarians. In fact, that is what we, to this day, call the Germanic tribes that surrounded and would eventually destroy the Romans in around the 5th and 6th centuries See the German barbarians, the men running through the woods with mud on their faces, as they've sometimes been described. Uh, and if you want to read about them, you can read about Caesar's defeat of them in the Gallic War. Hmm. And this was all in the wake of a Roman civil war that had just happened between two of Rome's leading citizens. They were Julius Caesar and Pompeius Magnus, Pompey the Great. They had fought each other. They had had actually great respect and love for each other. In fact, the messenger who first came to tell Julius Caesar about the death of Pompey disparaged Pompey, supposedly in front of Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar lashed out at him for speaking lowly of a great man. Because probably in Pompey, Caesar saw elements of whom? Himself, of course. You are measure, the measure of your victory is measured by the person that you what? person that you defeat, the people that you defeat. That's right. You always want to beat the best possible competition. Yes? Um, did, did, you think, did that have to do with the naming of the city of Pompeii or not? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. It certainly did. Though there were only something like 25 surnames for the Romans. The Romans, a difference between them and the Greeks is they don't have to say that they're the son of, like Diomedes, son of Titius anymore, because they had middle names. And they had last names. They had uh, their first name, which was their prinomen. They had their middle name, which was their nomen. And then they had their family name, which was their cognomen, the name they share with people. We know them mostly by their nomen. So um, the name of Virgil is actually Publius. That's his prinomen. Vergilius, that's his nomen. And there's an E there, not an I. That's why sometimes Virgil is spelled V-E-R-G-I-L. Lots of people think they're fancy will spell his name like that. Now you know the reason. You'll be like, oh, you wanted to pronounce his name, you wanted to spell his name Virgil? It's actually Virgilius, and his last name is Morrow. That's his cognomen. But we know him by his middle name, just like we know ourselves by our what names? Our first names, right. And in fact, you probably feel sort of weird about telling people your middle name because you feel it's sort of special, right? Anybody ever not tell somebody their middle name because they don't want to? What's your middle name? Just kidding. Uh, in any case... Yes, 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 yes. All right. So there had just been a Roman civil war, 49 to 45 BC, between, uh, between Caesar and Pompey. In fact, there is a, an epic written by Lucan, who will be one of the epic poets that you find in the Inferno of Dante next year, called Pharsalia, which is one of the major battles of that war. This came on the seat of three major wars between the Romans and the Carthaginians, the so-called Punic Wars. That was their name for the... Carthaginians, the Punicae. And so those wars happened over a 100-year stretch, uh, actually more than 100 years, 264 B.C. to 146 B.C. So finally, after hundreds of years of war, 264 all the way down to 45 B.C., e, the Romans got settled. And in fact, also a major thing had happened very recently, too, after the Battle of Actium, after... Well, in fact, a little bit before uh, Octavian Augustus Caesar came to power, his adopted father, Julius Caesar, had crossed the Rubicon. That is the river like the Scamandros outside of Detroit, the river outside of Rome. He had crossed that with an army, a Roman army, and he had taken, uh, not hostage, but he had taken 
he marched his army into Rome. He was the first army ever to march into Rome, and he was a Roman army, and he occupied it. And he implanted himself as dictator, which was usually a military position, imperator, for one year. He implanted himself as dictator for life. He became emperor. He ended the Republic of Rome. There had been a democracy. He create, turned it into an empire. And after he died, though he was killed by many senators on the Ides of March, 15 March, um, and I'll get to that slide soon, his adopted son would also become emperor. And so the time of the democracy, the Republic of Rome, would end being replaced by an empire, which on the one hand is sad, because democracy passed away, but on the other hand is happy, because there were 207 years of peace. The whole reason I'm telling you this is that the Romans had been war-torn, unstable, fighting against outside powers, fighting against internal powers, and finally they had peace. So now it was time to create and to develop their own mythology, to bask in their own glory. Is there a question over here? Uh, but he was well-loved by the people, wasn't he? Which one? Both of them. Yes, Julius Caesar and Octavian. But he was not well-loved by the senators who had great power and wealth and who had their power and their place in society reduced when the Republic, which was a democracy where they had leading positions, was then changed to an empire where they were then uh, beneath the what? The emperor. Remember, an emperor is a king who is a king over many kingdoms. In fact, that was the key, many people will say, to Roman power. Whenever they would take somebody over, they would not force them to change religion. They would not force them to change uh, custom or dress. They would just make them pay taxes, um, and they would make them serve in the Roman military. But they didn't change anything else besides that. And people seemed to be pretty much okay with that, because then they had access to Roman resources and Roman safety again. And when it came to Romans, who were highly civilized, as opposed to the German barbarians, who would do awful things like put your heads on pikes, also Romans would do that, but they were generally considered more civilized. Uh, you would generally choose the Romans. It's sort of like the, the troops in World War II who, if they had a chance to uh, run between the Soviets or the Americans and be, or the Soviets and the Germans in each track, they'd always run away from the Soviets. They would always run away from the Soviets. Yes. All right, in any case, the Aeneid. One of the things that it does, one of the reasons it was written, as I've been saying, was to provide a divine justification for the new emperor Octavian Augustus Caesar. The thing is about being a king is you have to have what kind of blood? Royal blood. And you might have asked, how does blood first become royal? I understand that like your father can be a king, and then you're, you know, you're a prince when you're born to him, or a princess, and you have his royal blood. But how did his blood get royal? Does some priest consecrate it? Do we have a royal jelly for humans? No, 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 no. You have to be in related... You have to be related in some way to a god. And so, it will be laid out, especially in Book 6, that Octavian Caesar, Augustus Caesar, is related to the founders of Rome, but also to Aeneas, the first, or excuse me, Aeneas, the first founder of Rome, who is himself the son of Aphrodite, the son of love, and who is herself the daughter of Zeus. And so Romans are descended from whom? The gods, Zeus. And who recalls what the new name of Zeus is? The new Roman name? It's one of our big planets. Our biggest planet, in fact. Yes? Jupiter. Who remembers the other one? Jove. Jove. Very good. And remember the expression, we still have, by Jove, 
I think he's got it, which means the same thing as what Archimedes said when he discovered the principle of displacement, which is Eureka. Eureka. Anybody know who Archimedes was? Supposedly sat in a bathtub that was very full. You sit in a very full bathtub, or you put your hand in a cup that's full to the brim, what happens to the water? It flows over the edges, which means that matter displaces itself. You take up the, the space that the water occupied, what happens to the water? It, it's got to move. That's right. It's got to move. Very similar to Newton's discovery of gravity. Alright, so, who was Augustus Caesar? Well, he was the adopted son, technically nephew, of the murdered Julius Caesar. Who is Julius Caesar? He was the man who crossed the Rubicon and planned himself as imperator for life, dictator for life uh, in Rome. Changed them from a democracy to, a, uh, to an empire. Very similar to the story of Star Wars and what had happened before the first series. It's now uh, episode 4, 5, and 6. Or episodes 4, 5, and 6. Um, something interesting uh, about Julius Caesar is that one of Shakespeare's most frequently uh, performed plays, Julius Caesar, which used to be taught to the students here as sophomore year, now you learn Macbeth and Othello, um, eternalized this event. It, it, and I, in fact, got to see it at the Old Globe this year, um, which was a wonderful experience. The events of the play prefigure Julius Caesar's death and essentially end with his death. Good, 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 good. So, how was Julius Caesar killed? He was killed by senators from whom he had stolen power after declaring himself as emperor for life in October of 49 BCE. Good, 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 good. The senators killed him on the Senate floor with knives in a subterfuge orchestrated by Brutus and Cassius, who will themselves be two of the people eaten in two of the faces of Lucifer in the bottom of the Inferno next year when you read the Inferno. There will be a third face facing forward which will be eating a third traitor, and that will be Pontius Pilate, if you know who he is. Anybody know who Pontius Pilate was? He was also a Roman, by the way. Anybody know what he's famous for doing? Yes, and asking, and asking, what is truth? There's a, and I'll make a very strong case to you next year, that crucifying Jesus and asking what is truth, asking, suggesting relativity of truth, are very similar acts. But we will get to that. It will be a symbolic way of interpreting how things happen. Yes? That is what that painting is. Very good. That is. And the reason it's upside down right now is because even though you, we think we're going down, we're actually going up as we go through the inferno because all things are inverted. All truth is inverted, which means that we see what in the inferno. What is an inverted truth? A lie. That's right. That's right. And so we see that what we thought was down is actually up. And that's why it's upside down. Uh, all right. Very good. Very good. And just remember that the date on which Jesus, or not Jesus, excuse me, Caesar was killed is called the Ides of March. And we still celebrate that on the 15th of March every year. It's right after Pi Day, so whenever you have Pi Day, you have the Ides of March coming soon. That comes from the name of a Roman date, the 15th, the halfway point of every month, which was called Ides. Here's a nice picture of Octavian. Very interesting here is you have like a little angel baby with an egg underneath him. That means that he's birthing a new age. That's why you have eggs during Easter. Because it's the coming of what? A new time of the year. Which is which time of year? Spring. Spring. Yes. Very good. Very good. Very good. And so during his rule, his age was very young and very small. and still needed to be birthed. But after his age, 
uh, it would it would itself age and mature and develop. And well, that you might say is the nascent Pax Romana. Good. Here's Caesar being slain. Uh, very famously, he says these words to his uh, adopted son, um, his also adopted son, Brutus, which is et tu Brute. I'm told that the actual Greek he would have used, they spoke Greek, the nobles, would have been Kaisu Technon, or Kaisu Techne. I think it's Technon in this case, which means even you, child, even you. Hmm. Yes, very brutal, very brutal. It's supposedly hot. Hid these under their togas, which is a garment of peace, but you, that's not, you can hide your ill intentions for only so long as a human. Yes. Well, this was both Latin and Greek. Yes, they spoke, but Latin was the lower language. That was what the commoners spoke. The literate, the literati, as it were, the noblemen, the senators, the people who were of equestrian class, they would have spoken ancient Greek. It happens that way in history. In fact, in 19th century Russia, if you ever read War and Peace, the noble Russians, they could speak Russian and they would with their servants, but they spoke French amongst each other. That was the language of the intellectuals. Hmm. Alright, so his successor, Augustus Caesar. Well, it wasn't super easy for Augustus to come to power, because he did have a rival at first, a fellow triumvirate. There were these three people who would rule over Rome called triumvirs. One was Mark Antony, one was... Um, <laughs> One was Augustus Caesar, Octavian, and one was actually a third guy whose name I'm forgetting right now, just because he was so forgettable. Well, two of these triumvirs came into conflict, conflict with each other, and one was Mark Antony. Mark Antony was actually very famous for two major reasons. One was after Caesar died, he took the garment of Caesar covered in blood, and incensed the crowd to rage against his, his killers, Cassius and Brutus, and in fact ended up defeating them in a battle. Um, but also because he was the second major Roman to lay with and have a relationship with Cleopatra. Yes, the famous Cleopatra, who also has a Shakespeare play written about her. The first one, do you know who the first major famous Roman to have lain with and had a child with Cleopatra was? Julius Caesar. It was Julius Caesar himself, by whom he had his son named Caesarion. Caesarion, yes, very good, very good. And so... Virgil decided, or rather Augustus decided, that in order to justify the shift in power from a republic to an empire, he would have a poet, Virgil, write a so-called nationalist epic praising the foundation of Rome. Something else to note. This was not originally sung, this work. It was originally written by Virgil on papyrus. And so it was written in order to be read, and in fact, very shortly after Virgil's death, it immediately began to be taught to school children. So part of the reason this text was written was to teach uh, young, the young how to speak the language and what their people were all about. And the reason we teach you this is because many of the roots of our democracy we find from where? From Rome. From Rome. In fact, if any of you happen to be Roman Catholics, many uh, the foundation of the Roman Catholic Church comes, of course, from Rome. Highly structured and hierarchical. Just to mention two pieces. And so, who is this Aeneas? Or what is this Aeneas? Why are we writing about Aeneas? Well, we remember this from the Iliad. We remember that there was Aeneas. We remember that Achilleus faced him. We remember that Aeneas was actually encouraged by Apollo to face down Achilleus. Though it was Poseidon, Neptune now, who, who would have to save him. 
And the reason that Poseidon Neptune had to save Aeneas from dying to Achilles was there was a prophecy. And what was the prophecy? That one day Aeneas, though he was like 120th in line, would rule the Trojans. All the people who would come before him would die, and some of them would move off to other places like Helenos, who was supposedly a traitor. We'll talk about that soon. We'll talk about that very soon. Well, Aeneas the Trojan will then be ancestor to Romulus, who gave his name to where? Romulus. Rome. Very good. And the story of Romulus and Remus is that they were twins. I might have a picture of this. It's kind of a weird picture. I don't know if I do. Who were born from, uh, well, technically a priestess of Mars and Mars, but were suckled by a she-wolf, which means they were ferocious. And that they wanted to set down the walls of Rome. And while they were doing it, Remus jumped over the small wall of Rome, which infuriated Romulus so much that he took out his sword and stabbed Remus in the heart. Very Cain and Abel sort of story. And he said, thus always to those who jump over the walls of Rome. So Remus died, and that's why it's not called Reem, but called Rome. Sorry, bro. All right, good. And so the Aeneid was written 30 BCE to 19 BCE. Remember that the Pax Romana begins in 27 BCE. Something interesting to note is that supposedly Virgil wrote a prose version of this uh, poem first, the story first. He wrote it out just in ordinary language. And then he wrote three lines of poetry a day for 12 or so years. It's really like around 11 years. Three lines a day. How much detail did he put into this work? A ton. He spent his time thinking about it and making it, making it good. Something else weird to tell you. On his deathbed, he requested that the work be burned. His life's work. Why, we ask. Two reasons people have suggested. One, because it's propaganda, and he did not believe in it. And there will be some evidence for that within the text. In fact, we will see the gates of horn and ivory again in Book 6. And Aeneas will himself go through the gate of ivory. But what goes through the gate of ivory? What comes from the gate of ivory according to Penelope and the Odyssey? Yes? Lies. False dreams. So it's like, this whole work is a what? Perhaps. Perhaps. The other reason is, it's unfinished. A few of the books, Book 3... Books 3 and Books 5 in particular were unfinished. He didn't have time to edit it all. And so artists are often perfectionists. So what do they not want you, what do they not want you to see until it's done? Their work. And it wasn't done yet. So maybe he was being very, very, very artistic and said, destroy it because it's not done. And there is some evidence for that interpretation as well. That said, Augustus Caesar heard that order. He belayed that order. And we still have the Aeneid because of him. So if you want to blame somebody for us having the Aeneid, don't blame Virgil. Blame Augustus Caesar. That guy. He's saying there, you will read the Aeneid. Alright, good, good, good. Here's some coinage with, uh, with Augustus on it. Divine Julius is what it says on the back of that too. Divus Julio. Uh, Caesar Augustus above. Julius Caesar uh, on the right. Mm -hmm. Alright, good. Good, 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 good. Alright, just to reiterate these dates. <laughs> Remember that Virgil lived 70 BCE to 19 BCE. Remember that during his life, the following significant events occurred. Caesar's civil war with Pompey, after he declared himself as emperor for life, 49 BCE, 45 BCE. The murder of Julius Caesar in 44 BCE. Uh, or sorry, that's when he declared himself emperor for life, not during Pompey's time. 
Octavian slash Augustus defeats Mark Antony in 30 BC. That's called the Battle of Actium. That was uh, actually Roman forces in Egypt fighting against the forces of Mark Antony joined with the forces of Cleopatra. Something weird to tell you about that. Looked like Mark Antony was doing very well until out of nowhere Cleopatra lost her nerve and turned her ships and fled. It so shocked Mark Antony that he himself turned his ship and fled which caused his men to go into disarray, which caused them to lose the battle. It's because of the cowardice of one person, and then perhaps the following of the cowardice by another Mark Antony, that that battle was lost. And Mark Antony would then commit suicide, and uh, so would Cleopatra, uh, prosaically, by using an asp, a snake's poison. She got a snake to bite herself and kill herself, rather than be paraded down the streets of Rome by Octavian, which is what he wanted. Recall also that Virgil began the work of the Aeneid in the year 30 BC. He completed work when he died in 19, uh, but didn't really complete the work he completed because he died in 19 BC. Recall that the Pax Romana begins about three years into uh, the construction of the Aeneid in 27 BC and goes on until 180 uh, CE, I should say here, CE. And that the Punic Wars, again, happened 264 B.C. to 146 B.C. Uh, a very famous one, the Second Punic War, um, is where we get Hannibal. And remember, Hannibal did something, perhaps you remember this from your ancient history course in 7th grade. Do you know what Hannibal led across the Alps, the largest mountain range in the world? Not just humans, not just horses. Elephants! Elephants. What an incredible, incredible feat. Yes, totally shocked the Romans. All right. Hmm. You know what? I'm actually going to stop us here from today. Since we have the lecture for tomorrow, this is the historical background. I'm going to get to the actual text itself tomorrow. I think I've told you enough interesting things that you can allow to percolate in your head. You know about Augustus. You know about Caesar. You know about Virgil. You know about Virgil's death and the construction of the Aeneid and how it ended there. You know about the Punic Wars, all three of them. You know about Hannibal. You know about the Pax Romana. You have several dates and new concepts to think of. You also have the ideas in your head now that this work, the Aeneid, is a masterpiece, but also potentially a work of propaganda that was used to justify the rule of a new emperor and connect his blood to the blood of the gods. Okay, I will say one last thing. I will say one last thing just to uh, send you off. Let's talk about the names to a few of these gods. Jove, Jupiter, is Zeus. Does anybody now know what Hera's new name is? It's the name from which we get one of your favorite months of the year because you don't have school. Yes? Juno. Juno. And, of course, which month of the year does that come from? June. Just like July comes from which Roman emperor? Julius, very good. Just like August comes from which Roman emperor? Augustus. Very good, very good, very good. So that's Zeus, that's Hera. Jupiter and Juno. Aries is now the planet that is red for violence, which is what? Mars. Aphrodite is the planet that we know to be very hot and made from lava, just like how passion and uh, love and lust make you hot. What planet is that? Venus. It's also very close to its father, the sun. Very good, which is one of the ideas about it. Ah, Hermes 
is very, very fast. And so he is the fastest of planets, which is what? Mercury. Mercury. Ah, Hades. Hades is a cold place far from the sun. What is the coldest and farthest planet from the sun? Yes? Pluto. Pluto. Very good. Very good. Neptune is a bluish planet, sort of like the sea. So which god would you imagine Neptune to be? Yes? Poseidon. Excellent, excellent, excellent. There are many others too. Ah, yes. Hephaestus gives his name to volcanoes because himself comes from Mount Etna, which is a volcano. Does anybody recall what his name is? In the back? Vulcan. Very good. Vulcan. Yes. Let's see. Which other ones? Ah, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Cupid, his name is Eros, which comes from a Greek word for love. Hmm. Are there any others that I need you to know me immediately? Ah, yes. It, this would not be complete without giving you the name of Athena. Athena shares the same name as the first name of the wise teacher of transfiguration from Harry Potter. Does anybody know Professor McGonagall's first name from Harry Potter? Yes? Minerva. Minerva is the name of Athena in this text. So, no Venus, Aphrodite, no Mercury, Hermes, no Jove, as, uh, and Jupiter, as Zeus, no Juno, as Hera, no Hephaestus, as Vulcan, no Minerva as Athena, if I already said that, or no Athena as Minerva. And if I said more, I should, ah, yes. And know that Apollo is now Apollo. His name stays the same. His name stays the same. Ah, yes, I guess I'll give one more. I'll give one more. Um, Artemis. Her name is now a name that we actually have very commonly. Yes? Diana. Diana. Very good. Very good. Very good. Very good. All right. There are more gods, and there are more gods with differing names, and there is a specifically Roman god, too, who will be mentioned. His name is Janus. He's the god of doorways, because doorways are both a beginning and an end, just like January, our month, is a beginning and an end, and he is a god of two faces, sort of like how a human life has two faces. You can be facing the past, or you can be facing the what? The future. The future. Always in the... Very good. All right.